The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter in you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, what are you do- why are you doing this, say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to them, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. When when Kirsty and I first got married... uh, We moved into a tiny little worker's cottage in Red Hill, one of Brisbane's uh, inner city suburbs. It was a run-down little place. Uh, There were no two parallel lines in the entire house. There were some floorboards missing, which the owners uh, carefully patched up with carpet. So there were some parts where you walk where literally all, all you were standing was carpet and then about six feet of air. And we loved it. It was our home, we made it our home, it was grimy and old and it was fantastic. And then uh, we thought to ourselves, hey, we've got a bit, of an, a bit of an opportunity to get into the housing market, let's try and buy a house. And so we set about on what we thought was, would take about one month to buy a house. Uh, little did we, did we know that it actually takes a bit longer than that to buy a house, especially a first house. And so we ended up having to live uh, in the downstairs part of our uh, friend's house. They had a two-story house and they lived in Zilmia and they had this like little rumpus room storage area. And so we lived there for like six months on a mattress on the floor and we made it our own and we absolutely loved it. And then we moved to our house that we were finally able to buy in Fernie Hills. Uh, it's a, it was a big house, and that became our home for about eight years. Uh, each one of our three children, when they were born, we brought them home to that house. And so there's this deep, uh, there's this deep kind of, uh, I guess, affection for that house, just because of the fact that that's where, we, that's where our kids grew up. And so we, we lived there for about eight years. 
And then at the beginning of 2015, our circumstances started to change and we found God leading us on a bit of a path that we look back at now and we see that actually what God was doing there was taking us on a bit of a journey to, to bring us to the Sunshine Coast, a four-year timeline. And during that four years, we moved around quite a lot. Uh, we moved uh, into Dakabin uh, with some friends and house-sitted with them for her parents. We did that for about 12 months. And then we bought some land up here at Baringa at Aura. And uh, we lived in a townhouse in Griffin for about, uh, I think, nine months that was. And then we finally moved here to Baringa and, and moved into the house that we're currently in, the house that we call our forever home, the house that we plan to stay in for, for the foreseeable future. And God willing, we can totally imagine ourselves living there for a long time. Every one of us has this innate desire to be at home somewhere, to find your dwelling place, to, to, to have your space that's yours, a, pla- a place where you can relax, where you can kick your shoes off, you can let your hair down and just be content. Uh, we, we notice that in our own lives and, and everybody feels it to some different degree, but we all feel this. It was my son Shepard's sixth birthday this week, and we gave him some presents uh, to do with his bedroom, to do with his, to, we gave him like a little shelf and a little bedside lamp, and he's just making the top bunk and his little desk in the room, he's just making that his space, like that's his territory, and it's very much a little boy's bunk bed and a little boy's desk. It's full of Mario and Star Wars and uh, Pokemon, of all things, which is just full of gear like that. We have this innate desire to make our dwelling place somewhere, to, to, to reside somewhere, to relax somewhere, to just be somewhere for, to be our home. And I genuinely believe that this desire to be at home somewhere is part of what it means to bear the image of God. And the reason why I say that is because we love and serve and worship a God who desires to make his home somewhere. And of all places, God, if we read through the Old Testament, we see that God desires to make his home not just kind of in heaven, distant, far off, that we imagine God is like up in the clouds somewhere. If we read through the Old Testament, we find that actually God desires to make his home among his people. That's actually extraordinary, right? That of all the places in the, in the universe where God could reside, he wants to be amongst his people. That might surprise us, but God wants to be with us. The passage that we're looking at this morning is about, in Mark, is about the triumphal entry and how Jesus came and entered and cleansed the temple. Now, we read, the, we read out that part about the triumphal entry. Um, unfortunately, I'm not going to preach on that part this morning just because we've got so much to cover. Uh, but I just wanted at least for that bit to be read out so we could sit under God's word for that much. For that much. But critical to understanding what this whole section is about is understanding what the temple is all about. See, if we don't know the significance of the temple, the temple that Jesus entered when he came down down the mountain and entered Jerusalem, entered into the temple, if we don't know the significance of the temple for the people of that day, then we'll struggle to understand fully what God is teaching to us in this passage now. And so before we even look at our passage, we need to understand three things, which I'm going to cover very briefly. We need to understand, firstly, the purpose of the temple. We need to understand the design of the temple. And we need to understand the history of the temple. And I can't uh, emphasize this enough. We are going to be so brief in this. It's going to be very, very quick running through this. This is not a comprehensive theology on the temple of God. The purpose of the temple was, about, was that our God is a holy God who desires to dwell with and among his people. 
God says in Exodus 25, And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you, and he's talking to Moses, concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. See, God is not a far-off, distance God who, who wants to be in the heavens and away from his people. God is the God who is in and among us. Now, that creates a bit of a conundrum because our God is holy. So how can a God who is holy dwell amongst people who are unholy? Dwell, dwell amongst people who aren't holy, who, who have sin in their lives? You see, holiness is perfection. It's purity so clean and perfect that anything that is unclean that comes close to it is incinerated by this holiness. So how can a God who is holy dwell amongst people who are unholy? And part of the answer to that in the Old Testament, it was the design of his dwelling place. You see, God called Moses to create his first dwelling place as, exactly as he prescribed it. And it basically meant that though God was among his people, he was essentially just out of arm's reach of his people. The design of the temple had three distinct places. There was the inner room, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. Uh, that was an area where God's presence dwelt. And only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies once per year, as long as that high priest was part of a particular family, a particular tribe, and as long as it was once per year, and as long as he followed a series of very strict ceremonial washings for a number of days leading up to that moment. Then there was the, uh, the holy place, the, the rest of the tent, which the priest could enter, and then outside of that was the court of the tabernacle, where only Jews who were ceremonially, ceremonially clean could enter. So this design, that God was, this design meant that God was among his people in his tabernacle, but it also meant that he was able to be there and be holy without incinerating them because he was basically just a little bit at arm's reach. And the third thing we need to know about is the history of this meeting place, the history of God's temple. See, if you read the Bible from Genesis, you'll see that God actually created the Garden of Eden as a place where he would dwell with his people. He would come and spend time with them. But because sin came into the world... His people had to be rejected. His, his, his people had to be uh, kicked out of the garden because they were no longer holy. It's made it a lot more, more difficult for God to be with his people. And then if we fast forward, we read that when God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, he commanded Moses to build this tabernacle to the exact specification. So when the tabernacle was completed, we read in Exodus 40 that God came in and went into his tabernacle, into the tent of meeting. A cloud came down. And filled the tabernacle. In other words, God entered his dwelling place. And then this tent went with the Israelites uh, throughout the desert, then into the promised land. And they used that tent for a, a bit more than 400 years. And then they built a new temple to replace the tent. And again, this temple which uh, was in David's heart and that Solomon completed, this, this temple, when they finished the temple off, God again came and entered the temple through uh, with this cloud, it was fire through this cloud that went and filled up the tabernacle, filled up the house of God. But the Israelites took the Lord's presence for granted and began to worship and serve false gods. And so, after hundreds and hundreds of years of God sending His prophets to warn the people of Israel to turn back to Him, eventually uh, God ex exiled them from their land, and the temple was destroyed. Seventy years went by. And God's, through God's great provision, the Israelites were allowed to return and rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. And so they rebuilt the temple, but then something strange happened. No cloud came. 
It was a big ceremony when they, when they dedicated the temple, but no cloud came. There was no visual marker to say that God was now dwelling in, in this new temple. The prophet Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, prophesied at one stage that the Lord would suddenly come to his people, but for another 400 years, nothing really seemed to happen. The people of Israel continued with their sacrifices and traditions, but things didn't really seem like they should be. The Israelites fell again into a pattern of taking the presence of the Lord for granted, and it seemed that the temple itself became far more important to them than the God who was meant to dwell in the temple. Following God's law was more important to them than actually the God who gave them the law. At one stage, the temple became de- was desecrated and damaged by foreign powers, and so things looked even more bleak and hopeless. But by God's great provision again, a king appointed by Rome named Herod went to work to repair the temple, and when he did, he added an extension on God's home, another courtyard called the Courtyard of the Nations, where people who weren't Jewish could come and pray. And this temple is the temple that was in existence when Jesus walked the earth. That's the history of the temple. That's a really brief history of the temple. And we need to understand all of that if we are to understand the significance of everything that is going to happen in Mark 11 verses 1 to chapter 12 verses 12. The passage that we're studying today is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy that God was going to one day come and re-enter his temple. Now, to really get what Jesus is actually doing in this whole section, we need to look at the structure of the passage that we've got before us. Jesus makes these three trips to Jerusalem over three consecutive days. He goes into Jerusalem and into the temple, and then couched among these three trips to the temple, we find a strange encounter between Jesus and a fig tree. And it kind of seems like Jesus is very, very angry at this fig tree. And understanding this fig tree is crucial to understanding the passage that we have before us. And so we're going to start there. We're going to start with the fig tree. We're going to understand what the fig tree is all about, and then we'll be able to understand what what is happening with the temple, and then we're going to look at the parable that Jesus says at the end of this. So we could summarize the teaching today in three sections. The tree, the temple, and the tenants. So that's a very long introduction to help us understand this is what this whole passage is about. So beginning in chapter 11, verse 12, Jesus came across a fig tree, And if we're honest, this is perhaps one of the strangest accounts of Jesus' life we ever come across. He was on his way back into Jerusalem on the second day after having spent the night with his disciples out in a village called Bethany. And he sees this fig tree and it's full of leaves, which tells us that the tree from a distance looked very promising. But Mark tells us that when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, the thing about Middle Eastern fig trees is that they bear two kinds of fruit. At this time of the year, during Passover, the figs weren't due for another five or six weeks or so. But the other type of fruit that the fig trees bore came in this, came in this time before the figs, and there were these little nodules which were very, very, very abundant and very good to eat. So to find a fig tree that was full of leaves and looked very promising but without these little nodules meant that this tree was sick. There was something wrong with this tree. And so finding the tree to be without fruit, Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And that's confusing, right? It's like, wow, Jesus, is he hangry? 
Is that what this is? Are we just seeing a very human moment from Jesus? Like, have a Snickers, Jesus, and you'll be a lot cooler? Like, that's, is that what Jesus is saying? Is that what Mark is telling us? It seems a bit harsh, but actually Jesus isn't being ill-tempered. He isn't being impatient. He's recognizing that there's something wrong with this tree. And from what he says, it sounds like this tree is never going to produce fruit again. And as usual, as always with Jesus, there's something far deeper than just what we see on the surface. Now, if we read through the Bible, fig trees are emblematic. They're symbolic. They're a symbol that the prophets would use to describe, to demonstrate the fruitlessness of Israel. The lack of fruit was emblematic of the nation going wayward and not producing the fruit of righteousness. And that's what this fig tree is pointing to. It's pointing to actually something bigger that's going on with the nation of Israel. So Jesus continues and he comes into the temple and Mark tells us that he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changes and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And to understand the reason why Jesus was so angry, like he's not just hangry from before, there's actually something far deeper going on. We need to look at what he's saying while he's doing this. So as he's going around tipping tables over and driving people out, what is he actually saying? This is what he's saying. He says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now Jesus here is actually quoting scripture. He's quoting Isaiah 56, which is why we read Isaiah 56 this morning. And Isaiah 56 talks about the nations, the, the, the Gentiles, people who aren't Jewish, being in God's house. Now, if we consider the history of the temple and the purpose of the temple and what that was all about, that's, that's spectacular, right? That's, that's crazy. It's extraordinary that Isaiah is prophesying about a time that the nations would be in God's house. It's incredible because the temple was meant to be a place where a holy God would dwell with his people. The Israelites. The Gentiles were not holy people. They hadn't been made holy by the sacrificial system. And so if you weren't a Jew, you weren't allowed to go into God's house. And yet here is Isaiah saying that the nations will. You see, in Isaiah 56, we get a taste of God's heart. Isaiah 56 is opening up God's heart and showing us actually what is inside of God's heart. And when we look at it, we see that actually what Isaiah is saying is, Incredibly, incredibly profound. He's saying it's not your national heritage that actually makes you one of God's people. What God cares about, what, what God cares about is your heart towards him. God says, I want you to join yourself to me. I don't care that you're not Jewish. I don't care if you're morally unclean. If you come to me with a sincere heart and you choose the things that please me and you hold on to the covenant that I made with you, then you'll get a place in my house. You'll get the family name and a monument inside of my house within my walls and you'll never be cut off. And it won't be because you've managed to find a way to make yourselves clean. It's because I will have made you clean. I'm the one who's going to do it, says the Lord. And then God says this in Isaiah 56, verses 6 to 7. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, the foreigners, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these, these foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. 
Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This is the part that Jesus is quoting. In other words, God's purpose in his temple wasn't about excluding people or keeping people at arm's length. The the temple is a model for how God will one day set up and make his dwelling place with all people, not just the Jews. And he's saying unholy people, Gentiles, people who have sinned, they're going to be able to come right into my presence without being incinerated. They're going to be able to come close to a holy God without being destroyed because of their sin. And if we look at what God is doing throughout all of the Old Testament, we'll actually see that God's plans for salvation never actually were just for Israel. God's plan to save and redeem mankind from their sin is and always has been for the whole world. Chronologically, it began with Israel, but it was never meant to, to to just remain with Israel. It was meant for all of mankind. Now, is this what Jesus finds when he comes into the temple, a house of prayer? No, instead of it being a house of prayer for all people, Jesus sees a den of robbers. Money was being exchanged between people. Sacrificial animals were being sold to people. Money changes were in place to ensure that only Jewish currency was being used to purchase the sacrificial animals. And all of this made the temple a place of chaos, a place of noise, a place of ridiculous smells and people and cacophony of just craziness. You see, this was Passover week. That's a very, very busy time in the life of Israel, very, very busy time in the temple. The, uh, the, the Jewish historian Josephus wrote that on one particular Passover week, in one particular year, in one week, early on, around this time, around 255,000 lambs were sacrificed that week during Passover. Now, if that is one sacrificial lamb per household, how many people, hundreds of thousands of people coming through the temple, coming through uh, the, the court of the Gentiles, making it a place, it, was, it wasn't a place of prayer anymore, it was a place of business. And the Jewish leaders who were tasked with keeping the temple pure and protecting the temple from unauthorized worship had instead turned it into a place where they could profit off people. You see, Jesus doesn't call it a den of robbers because he can see people getting robbed. Well, that, well, that was probably happening. Jesus calls it a den of robbers because they were robbing him of worship. They were robbing God of worship. God's house, which was meant to be a place of worship, a place where he would welcome in those who want to join their hearts to him, to bring him praise, to bring him glory, to come close to God, that place had become a messy and chaotic place designed to, or designed to exalt mankind. You see, Jesus didn't just see chaos and confusion and noise. Jesus saw a barren fig tree. He saw something that was meant to produce the fruit of righteousness. From a distance, it looked like there was a whole lot going on. It was busy, lots of people in the temple, fantastic. Jesus gets up close and personal and sees there's no fruit here at all. This is the point of the story. This is the point of the fig tree of the barren temple and ultimately the point that Isaiah 56 is making too. The chronological unfolding of God's salvation for sinners started with Israel, but through Jesus Christ, it was now going to the whole world, just like God promised it would in in Genesis 12 and all throughout the Old Testament. See, what we have before us is not a random sequence of obscure stories. It's the changing of gears in God's redemptive plan for the world. 
in the same way that God prepared his people for him to make his dwelling place among them, Jesus was now preparing a new dwelling place. But this dwelling place wouldn't just be for the people who were of Israelite heritage. It would be for all of mankind. And this new dwelling place that Jesus was building wouldn't be in one particular location, but it would be in the heart of everyone who joins their heart to the Lord. This is why Paul says in Romans 9, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Did you hear what Paul just said? Being born as an Israelite doesn't doesn't automatically make you one of God's children, and not being born as an Israelite doesn't disqualify you from being one of God's children. What makes us one of God's children is that he gives us the family name. He he secures a spot for us in the family home. It's it's what Isaiah said. Those who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love him and hold fast the Lord's covenant, that's that's what brings us into the presence of God, that we want God. On on the next day, on this third trip to the temple, Jesus tells uh, another parable. Jesus tells a parable. This time he's talking to the chief priests and the, the scribes and the elders. If you follow through the book of Mark, you'll actually see that uh, this is the first time that Jesus has come face to face with these chief priests. Uh, we saw last week that three times Jesus predicted that these chief priests would be the one who actually killed him. And so this is a big, significant moment. And he tells them this parable. It's become known as the parable of the tenants. And uh, if you read this parable on its own, it's quite confronting Quite perplexing, but if you look at it now in, in, in light of everything that Jesus is doing and saying here, it'll help us understand what's truly going on. So let's read Mark 12, verse 1. Jesus says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, the more that I've been chewing on this parable this week, the more I've just been processing it and turning it over and over again in my mind, the more profound and wonderful this parable actually is. See, Jesus is in many ways summing up the entire redemptive history in one story. The man who planted a vineyard and built infrastructure around it, that's God, who chose Israel and set up his tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, and the law for them. The tenants who he leased the vineyard to are Israel, whom God entrusted with the care and protection and the fruit of the worship system. The servants whom, whom he sent are the prophets whom Israel collectively and ultimately rejected, and the son to whom the vineyard sorry the son whom the vineyard owner sent is God's son Jesus Christ who was sent to the temple but found it to be barren. Now, that last part there is very important. Verse nine says, "What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others." 
Jesus is saying that God's plan of redeeming his people and making them holy so that he could dwell amongst them and know them and they know him without being at arm's reach was finally coming true. When Jesus uh, was coming, sorry, was Jesus coming to destroy the temple? Was Jesus coming to destroy his sanctuary? Jesus was coming to rebuild his sanctuary. He was coming to rebuild it, as, not as a physical structure somewhat, but he was building it in our hearts. And if you're paying attention, we'll know that that's impossible. Why? Because the temple was about a holy God dwelling amongst a holy people in a holy land. In a, in a holy land. And we don't have to search very far in our hearts to realize that we're not holy. How on earth could a holy God come and live inside of our hearts? How can God do that? Well, the answer is in verse 7, where the tenants said to one another, another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. You see, they thought that by killing the son, they would inherit the vineyard, but by destroying the son, they secured the inheritance of the vineyard for someone else, for others. Verse 9 says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. You see, these tenants, these tenants were just that. They were tenants. This was a lease. It wasn't permanent. They thought that by killing the son, the vineyard would become permanently theirs. But what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and not lease it to others, he will come and give it to others. Their plan backfired. Because the son died, ownership of the vineyard was now secured for others. Do you understand what this means? It means that God's plan for salvation, though it was for Israel first, was never meant to just stay with Israel. It was always about the whole world, Israel and the nations, the rest of the world, all of mankind. And it's secure for us because Jesus Christ died. It's not least to us. He's not going to take it back. It's not conditional upon our behavior. It's conditional. God's salvation for us is conditional about his son's blood, which was poured out on the ground beneath the cross. It's not a lease. It's not temporary. Those whom God saves are saved forever. He has given them salvation. Now we might ask, well, who are these others? These nondescript others, who are they? Why do they deserve it? And I'm glad you asked that question, because that's the point. They don't deserve it. God's wonderful plan of salvation was always about making people who don't deserve to be his heirs, his heirs. That's the plan of salvation. We don't deserve salvation. None of, not a single one of us has done anything to merit our salvation. It is solely, solely the gift of grace from Jesus Christ. This is the very definition of grace. This is what is so spectacular about the gospel. You and I can be heirs of what is rightfully Jesus's. What what, what rightfully belongs to Jesus, we can become heirs of those things because Jesus died. Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world right now. And actually in my notes, in my first draft of, of my notes, it was actually Elon Musk. But Jeff Bezos, two days ago, became the richest person in the world. I don't know why Google tells me these things, but apparently Google thinks I need to know these things. Uh, Jeff Bezos has four children. They are heirs to the currently richest man in the world. And I bet if we went around the, the room here, just about every single one of us would say, I wouldn't mind being 
one of Jeff Bezos' kids. Like, I don't know anything about Jeff Bezos. I don't know what kind of a dad he is. But imagine being the heir to the richest person in the world. Well, we are heirs to the greatest vineyard that it will ever, ever exist. There's going to come a time where God will once and for all renew the earth and heaven will descend upon the earth and there will be a new creation and a new earth and God will forever dwell with his people. Not in one certain location, not at arm's length, not in a cloud, but face to face. And we will be made holy. Everything that is true of Jesus Christ will become true of us. And we will see God face to face because of what he did for us. And we will dwell with him for eternity face to face. And that's exactly what we get with Jesus. By joining our hearts to God, we can become an heir of all that rightfully belongs to Jesus. Now we might say, wow, that's great. Like how amazing is grace? But we're actually not yet at the bottom of understanding from our passage alone how great and wonderful this grace is, how great and wonderful God's love for us is. You see, in that story, we are the others, the nondescript others who don't deserve it. We are those people if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But we are also, because of our sin, the tenants who destroyed the Son. It's not that Israel are collectively the tenants and they are destroyed. Then if you're not an Israelite, then you're collectively the others. The tenants are all of mankind and the others are those who God saves. All of mankind is responsible responsible for the death of the Son, but the Son is responsible for the salvation of mankind, for those who he chooses to save. And this is the greatness of the love and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. This is why we sing that song often on Sundays, it was my sin that held him there. Because it was our sin that held him there. Our sin was the nails that went through Jesus' body. It was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was, it was my sin. His dying breath has brought me life, and we know now it's finished. It's completed, it's done, it's secure, it's forever. We were the ones who killed the son, and yet because the son also willingly died for us, we become the heirs of all that it rightfully is. All that rightfully belonged to Jesus Christ was given to us as a free gift of grace and it cost God absolutely everything to give it to us. Friends, this isn't a scam. This isn't a hoax, it isn't a trick. Our sin is what caused Jesus to be hung on a cross, but by hanging on that cross, Jesus removed our sin. He made us holy so that the holy God of the universe could make his dwelling place in our hearts. Let's pray. God, you are holy. There is nothing about you that, is, that has got error in it. You are perfect and pure beyond measure. And Father, we are not. We're not holy because of our sin, and yet because of the gospel, we are made holy in your sight. We are made righteous in your sight. And though we're still sinners, that makes us saints now, Lord. Stumbling saints, no doubt, but you have made us into your your children. You have done this, not us. We can't claim any of that on our own, Lord. 
We can't claim that we somehow merited your salvation. We can't claim that, that we somehow, because we were good stewards of what you've given us, that we somehow deserve it. Lord, we are the nondescript others who don't remain as nondescript others but become your children because of your loveliness. So, Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 